we're back again. Gracing the interwebs with the absolute beauty of Christian doctrine, nay, even Lutheran doctrine. Twice as much Lutheran doctrine as used to be on the interwebs, thanks to us. That's right. Welcome back again. I'm Pastor Wells. Wells with two L's because I am a right along with you. Twice the Lutheran. You know, they say if a thing is too... Let's try that again. You know, if they say... That didn't work. They say, if a thing is too good to be true... There, I got it out, see? Then it probably isn't, meaning isn't true. I was thrilled to get through the Seventh Commandment last week. And in two episodes, so good, it was almost too good to be true. And alas, alas, my friends, it was too good, that is, and also not true. All right, it was mostly true. I just forgot to mention a couple of things about the seventh commandment that I thought were was worth our attention. But then again, there was probably a hundred other things that I didn't talk about that I could have about the seventh commandment. That's why I need you, you beautiful listening audience. Reach out to me. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org is the email. I want to make sure I'm talking about the things you want to talk about, and that means I need to know what you'd like to talk about. Podcast at twicethelutheran.org. All right, back to what I was saying was too good to be true. We finished up, or so we thought, the Seventh Commandment. The seventh commandment, which forbids stealing. Here's what it says. You shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not take our neighbor's property, money or property, or get it by dishonest dealing, but help him improve and protect his property and means of income. Now, what is it that we forgot to talk about, in my opinion? We forgot to talk about this element of the Seventh Commandment that forbids, drumroll please, waste. Wasting. And you can see clearly how this commandment forbids that, right? And how God would hate that if he gives you a gift of stuff Of course, the last thing he wants you to do with that stuff is waste it. This is one of those areas that's a very interesting study on freedom and how we consider freedom. Our sinful human nature likes to think of freedom as the right to do whatever I want. And that's not how the Bible talks about freedom. Really, the probably a more accurate way of talking about freedom is the right to decide how I should discipline and curb myself without anybody doing that for me. That's a totally different way to look at freedom, right? 
Freedom is the freedom I have to choose how I should sacrifice for other people or what I should give up. I, that's kind of a weird way of saying it. We, we talk about freedom as freed from and freed for. That's what the Bible says. Freed from sin, death, and hell through the blood of Jesus and freed for a life of service to others. So the question we're always asking is how can I better serve other people the way God would have me do it? And one of those ways is with stuff. So people often think, well, it's my stuff. I can do whatever I want with it, and therefore I can wreck it, ruin it, bury it, whatever I want, right? Buy a perfectly good car and drive it off a cliff. Okay. Again, that's legal. Like, you can do it. And no one's going to tell you you can't. In America, you have the right to do that. But is that the end-all, be-all of how we decide what we should do? Of course not. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right. So how do we decide what is right? Of course, that's what you're here to study. (laughs) The Ten Commandments. What God says is right and wrong. So how about this, this aspect of waste? Oh, man, if you came to my house and you saw how much food landed in the garbage can or how much good milk went down the drain, you'd just, you would cry. You'd cry. Or maybe it's the same at your house, too. Yeah, waste. I'm reminded of the feeding of the 5,000. Remember how they feed the 5,000, and Jesus tells the disciples, go pick up the leftovers. And they have more than enough leftovers at the end of it all. Twelve baskets full just happens to be the right number of baskets for each one of the apostles to have his lunch. But the Lord does not want leftovers wasted. He doesn't want us to waste. And here is the particular shame, and I am going to say it that way. I know that's a little bit strong, but this is the particular shame of the American culture. Our system is a bread to be wasteful. On purpose, we are wasteful. Just think about it. Go, go down to Walmart or wherever else and buy toys for your kids. What are they made out of? Thinner and thinner plastic. And they break after one use. There's nothing more frustrating. And if if I'm talking to you parents out there, you know I'm talking your language. You know you've been here. You buy a little plastic car for your kid, whatever. They're driving it around. And, and in 10 minutes, oh, the wheel snapped off. The car busted in half, whatever. It's just a piece of junk. And And did you ever think to yourself, My goodness, how much energy was used to make this thing? And now it's now that's it. That's done. All this time and effort and energy and machinery and whatever to melt down the plastic and pour it in a mold and get it out of the mold, et cetera, et cetera. And it lasted ten minutes. And where does it end up? In a dump heap? I don't know. It's just shameful. It really is. My personal experience with this is my refrigerator in my kitchen. I we we bought a fridge. Our fridge went out. It was during COVID. You know, you couldn't get anything to save your life at that point from the supply chain. So we had to like emergency buy a fridge, and it wasn't the best quality. And we kind of knew that. We thought, okay, well, you know, if we can get like five years, I think about that. I'm happy with five years out of a fridge. Are you kidding me? My great grandma, even 
Tell I was an adult. She had in the basement a fridge from the 1950s. You know those like lead coffins that like could kill a child because it would lock from the inside and you couldn't get out. Yeah, she had one of those. Ran perfect. Ran great for like like 80 years or something. We finally threw it away because we were just tired of looking at it. It still ran great. There was so much metal and heavy components in that thing, you could probably build a car out of it. But nowadays, I buy a fridge, and I'm happy to get five years, and guess what? Didn't even get five years out of it. So I got to go buy another stinking fridge. Talk about frustrating. And as the guy is, is, is installing the fridge in my house, the delivery guy, you know, that was part of the package deal, whatever. He says, yeah, all these fridges are, you know, energy-rated, green star, whatever. But he said, it, they, they just sip on electricity. They use a tiny amount of electricity, and you think that sounds really good. But in order to do that, they're using cheap components that burn out in the fridge's garbage in 10 years at the best. That's what they hope to get you, 10 years. And you think, man, if we would just build the thing quality, guess how many fridges I would have to buy? One, maybe two in my life, right? But now I gotta buy a fridge every decade at at the best? Really? Do you know how much energy is used to make that one fridge and then I gotta swap it out? Our whole system, friends, is set up to be wasteful. In fact, it's very hard as a family when you live in a system like that to try and figure out ways to stop the waste. We're constantly doing that at our house. And you're constantly doing that too, right? What's the best bang for the buck I can get so that I can make a purchase once and be done? And you just think, you know, we could make we could make stuff to last forever. We have the technology. I mean, just even think of your cars. I know cars last a lot longer than they used to. You can get 100,000 miles out of it. But there's so many components on a car they could make better. Why not give us better brake lines? <laughs> That they don't rust out and rot out. Why not give us thick aluminum body panels? And you'd say, well, Pastor Wallace, do you know what the cost you'd have to pay for a car that like that? I don't know, but I might consider paying it if it's the only car I got to buy. They could make them go a million miles. Of course, they don't want to because then you're not coming back and buying another one. So you can see how a lot of, and that was, that was kind of a rant. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's kind of pessimistic. But, but you can see how the systems around us, if they're not centered on the word of Christ, they, I mean, they get carried away. They get carried away. You know that so much of our system is built on, on greed, on corporate greed, needing to get higher and higher profits. And in order to do that, you make worse and worse junk and charge people the more and more for them. Yeah, that sounds great if you're the guy getting paid, I guess. But for the rest of us, you know, the 99% of us out here, we get robbed in the whole thing. The Lord forbids in the seventh commandment, waste. And just at that point alone, I have more sins that need to be forgiven than I could even shake a stick at. Because I know that I've been wasteful. I know you've been wasteful. And just think of the times that Jesus, even on earth, was never wasteful. I already mentioned that five, the feeding of the 5,000. Perfectly 
captures, the leftovers, those leftovers probably went to feed those apostles so they'd have their lunch. The Lord made an abundant, in fact, a super abundant, but not so much that there was just heaps and heaps of waste. He made super abundant to the just the right degree so that everyone would have exactly what they needed, no more and no less. No waste. All right. I think that's what I wanted to mention with the seventh commandment. Twelve minutes into the episode, we had to backtrack. Yeah, that's all right. You love me anyways, don't you? Of course you do. Of course you do. All right, let's leave the seventh commandment. Well, I I wouldn't say leave it behind us because, you know, it's God's commandment. We want to keep it with us. But let's go to an, an eight, the, the next commandment, which is, of course, the eighth commandment. All right, here's what it says, the Eighth Commandment. And if you're following along, I'm on page 97, page 97 in my, in my catechism here. Here's what it says. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, or give him a bad name but defend him, speak well of him, and take his words and actions in the kindest possible way. All right, so if you think about the commandments from the aspect of God protecting something in each of the commandments, like fifth commandment protecting the gift of life, sixth commandment protecting the gift of sex, seventh commandment protecting the gift of stuff, possessions, what is being protected in the eighth commandment? It is your reputation. It's your name. It's your reputation. I mean, finally, that's what reputation means, right? When you think of somebody, you draw up a mental image, a mental picture of them in your mind. So when you think of Pastor Wells, of course, you think tall, dark, and handsome. Right? Hilarious, well-spoken, insightful, deep, boyishly good-looking. (laughs) Of course that's what you think of me when you think of me. All right, maybe not. But a guy can hope, right? A guy can hope. So if God's protecting uh, the gift of our name, of our reputation, of what people think about us, why is that so important? Why is a good name an important blessing? That's what the catechism asks. And, and uh, the, the passages provided are more parenthetical summaries. Genesis 39, Joseph was thrown into prison because of a lie that Potiphar's wife told. Remember that one? Yeah, she, she makes a false accusation against Joseph, and he ends up in prison. 1 Samuel 19, 1 through 6, Jonathan, this is a positive example, Jonathan defended David's life by speaking well of him, and he does it again in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Jonathan defends David. So what we say about people, yeah, sure, it can be funny and it can be humorous, whatever, but it can also be like super-duper life-alteringly important. So why is a good name an important thing? Here's what the catechism says, and it's right, of course. A good name is important because it determines whether people will respect us, trust us, or believe the truth about us. 
And why is that so important? Because the reality is a Christian's reputation in a lot of ways is tied to God's and vice versa. So that if somebody has a poor uh, opinion of you because maybe you've either wrecked your own reputation or somebody's done that to you, whether fairly or unfairly, they've wrecked your reputation. Now you try to tell somebody about Christ. You think they're going to listen? Bet not. I bet not. Your reputation is important because, in part, God's reputation is on the line in your life. And, in part, because you have a message that you have been given by God to share. And if people don't believe what you're saying, if they think you're a liar or a cheat or whatever, they're not going to listen to you. And the same is doubly true if you're in the ministry, right? If, if instead of tall, dark, and handsome, instead of that picture of me in your mind, you draw up a picture of uh, lazy, you know, liar, you, you, you can't trust him any farther than you can throw him, and then I get in the pulpit. Are you going to listen? I bet not. Or if you do, boy, you got a lot of hurdles to get over, right? Because my reputation precedes me. You've heard that saying. If your reputation precedes you, that means people have an image or an impression of you before you've even met them. And boy, that reputation can spread mighty fast. <laughs> mighty fast. Especially if you live in a smaller town like I do where everybody's stinking related. <laughs> that's, that's an okay thing, by the way. It just means people talk, as is their want, and news news gets spread. Now, that doesn't put a stamp of approval or okay on gossip or anything like that. We're going to talk about that in this commandment. That's forbidden. But finally, people talk, right? And you talk about people. And so reputation is important because before you even meet somebody, they're drawing a picture of you in their mind based on what they've been told. All right, pressing on a little further on page 97. When God forbids false testimony, notice he doesn't forbid testimony. He forbids false testimony. So you can say things about people, but not falsely, right? Not to damage them. When God forbids false testimony, he reminds us that anything that hurts a person's good name is a sin. How does the Eighth Commandment serve as a mirror, showing us that we also sin against God when we fail to respect our neighbor's good name? All right, some passages here. Leviticus 19.16. You shall not go around spreading slander among your people. You shall not testify falsely against your neighbor. In a capital case, I am the Lord. So the Lord is reminding you there. It's me talking. This is a big deal. Proverbs 19.5, a false witness will not go unpunished. He breathes, he breathes lies and will not escape. And Colossians 3.9, do not lie to each other since you have put off the old self. That's who you used to be. That's what you used to do. Don't lie to each other since you put off the old self with its practices. You've gotten rid of the old self, right? 
So here's what the catechism says. We sin by lying to or about someone. This includes everything from lying in our daily conversations to lying as a witness in court, which is called perjury. Yeah, we treat this sin pretty lightly, don't we? Sure we do. I mean, perjury perjury has just about become as common as court cases themselves. Now, how do you how do you show or prove that somebody's lying? Well, that's what the justice system is about. Although, boy, we've seen some some cases, haven't we? Where you go, I don't know, I don't know that we that we sniffed out the perjurer here. I don't know that that everyone's uh, on the up and up and telling the truth. So, do they get off the hook? Well, in this life, maybe. And that's true. I'm sorry. And, and that's the tough way of life. We like to see Superman swoop in and save the day. We like that the, the good guy always wins and the bad guy always loses. But in this lifetime, that's just not always true. Sometimes people lie and they get away with it. Or at least for a while. Now, I will say this, nine times out of ten, If not immediately, then at some point in the future, a person's lies will catch up with them. Life has a funny way of doing that. Or maybe I should say God has a funny way of doing that, right? And you could probably think of examples either in your own life or in the life of somebody else where they lied and they thought they got away with it and they might have got away with it even for a couple of decades and then all of a sudden... These old issues of what they had lied about to begin with years and years ago catch up with them. Especially in this day and age of, you know, digital media where everything is captured, recorded, and remembered. Yeah, the internet has a long, long memory, which means people, society in general, has a long memory. And, unfortunately, they're not given to forgiveness either. (laughs) So, So... you kind of swallow hard. Every time you, you step out of your house, you're being recorded. Yep. Now, for those of us who conduct ourselves according to the word of Christ, not perfectly, but for those of us who walk in the commandments, yeah, we trust that, that God has our back, that our reputation is being protected sometimes in ways we might not even know about. But you lose that protection the minute you step willingly into this realm of lying either to someone or about someone. And rest assured that in the end, every liar will be held accountable. God holds people to account. No perjurer, no liar gets away with it. Not in the long run, not in the eternal run. If you think society's got a long memory, God's got a longer one. If you want to make him forget about those things, then you repent. Then repent. Run to Christ for forgiveness from your lies. That's the only way the Bible says you can make God forget about your sins. That's it. That's the only way. You flee to Christ. You find your lies forgiven in the blood of Jesus. Then God says, I don't remember your sin. I forget about it. But if you don't, if you refuse to come to Christ, well... Then be warned, I guess. Be warned. God has an awful long memory. He has a perfect memory, and he has perfect justice, too. Don't lie. And if you have lied, repent 
Repent. All right, let's press on a little bit more. Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 11.9. With his mouth, the godless person destroys his neighbor, but righteous people are rescued by knowledge. Don't run your mouth when you don't need to and, then, and therefore destroy your neighbor. Proverbs 16.28. A perverse man spreads conflict and a gossip separates intimate friends. That's sad. I mean, that really is sad. You know how rare friendship is? You know how hard it is to find real friends? It's such a gift from God. If you found a good friend that you can share your 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 heart and your soul with, like Jonathan and David did, then rejoice. But then take the take that relationship very seriously. Don't you dare be a gossip then. Because a gossip separates intimate friends. Gossiping can destroy your relationships. Don't do it. And if you're a perverse man, you love to spread conflict, Proverbs says. A perverse man spreads conflict. God to sow seeds of dissension, right? Perverse man does that. Proverbs 17, 19, a person who loves sin loves conflict. I Don't you just love the clear statements of the Proverbs sometimes? A person who loves sin Loves conflict. I mean, to a certain degree, we all, there's our sinful nature all loves conflict, right? What do you think these reality TV shows are about? What do you think Dr. Phil's show is all about? Jerry Springer before him is all about. What do you think these soap operas and things are all about? You, you know what's really tough? You know what's really boring? A show without conflict. We figured that one out. If you want a good show, you got heavy conflict and lots of it. So our sinful nature just gobble, 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 just gobbles that up. We love it. That's what the tabloids are all about. Hey, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear about how much weight she put on? Did you hear about what he said and where he's at? Gobble, we just eat it up. Because our sinful nature just loves that sort of social junk food. We just love to binge on conflict. Because conflict is exciting. And that is maybe the hardest part of somebody who is given to drama. If you are somebody who is given to drama, you know what the hardest part of getting over that is? You might be tempted to say, relationships can be boring without conflict. Life can be boring without conflict. There's not that sort of high. There's not that intrigue. There's not that pull. Ah, you, if that's you, listen again to this one. A person who loves sin loves conflict. Don't love conflict. Seek to sow seeds of peace. How'd you like that alliteration, huh? Seek to sow seeds of peace. Not conflict. And it sounds so easy to do, but again, our sinful nature gets in the way. Our conflict-loving sinful nature. Got to have that junk food of conflict. All right, 1 Timothy 5.13. They also learn to be lazy as they go about from house to house. They not only learn to be lazy but also to be gossips and busybodies saying things that they should not say. If you're not busy working for the Lord, you're busy working for Satan. 
That's sort of in the context here of 1 Timothy 5. Not being attentive to the duties at home, the duties at work, and so what do you do? You get bored. And what's a better cure for boredom than a little conflict, huh? What's the solution? Be faithful in executing the duties the Lord has given you, and you hopefully, prayerfully, will find yourself too busy to care about conflict and gossip. In fact, you might even learn, get this, I know, gasp, hold your breath. You might even learn to seek and love peace. That's something the new man wants. That's something the real you wants, the Christian you. You want peace. I know you do because that's what I want. I want peace. I want to have peace, not conflict in my relationship with my wife. I want peace, not conflict in my relationship with my fellow pastors, with the people at church. I want peace in my community. I want happiness there. And you know how you get there? Shut your mouth. (laughs) Sometimes, finally, that's what it comes down to. Shut your mouth. Now, we've all been there, right? We've all done the, you know, open mouth insert foot routine. I I said too much. I shouldn't have said that. Usually, if you're replaying a conversation in your head over and over and you're wondering, shoot, did I say too much? Usually, the answer is, yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. And so, when that's the case, have you learned what to do yet? Have I drilled it into your head yet? You twice the Lutherans. What do you do? You flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Find it forgiven there. And of course, once you find your sin forgiven there, you want to go above and beyond to do what you can to remedy the damage you've done. So if you have destroyed somebody's reputation through gossiping and you realize that, yes, go to Christ apologize, because every sin is a a sin against God first and foremost. Then find the sin washed away in the blood of Christ, and then get to work fixing the mess you made. Now, you can't always, and I know that. That's why I said we want to do what we can. You got to be careful, especially with your words, right? People have used that old analogy of uh, toothpaste coming out of the tube, right? Put the toothpaste back in. Well, you might get some of it back in, I suppose, but you're going to have a mess no matter what you do at that point. Once the words come out of your mouth, be careful. You might have a mess on your hands. All right, so what does God forbid? We sin by spreading gossip or by saying anything that will give a person a bad name. Find your joy in building, not in destroying. And I don't mean that just with physical building. I know a lot of guys that do. I, I'm one of them. I love building stuff, fixing stuff, making stuff better. But you can also find joy in building somebody's reputation. Build them up, not tear them down. Now, again, that doesn't come natural to any of us. In fact, what comes natural to us is to tear down, of course, because if I tear other people down, then I feel better about me, which is a whole twisted, perverted uh, outlook on life to begin with. You don't want that perspective on life. It ain't all about you. Use your life, which is your time, your money, and now your words, to meet the needs of others. Build them up. Consider them better than yourself. 
All right. Pressing on Proverbs eleven thirteen, a gossip goes around betraying secrets, but a trustworthy spirit keeps a matter confidential. And Proverbs twenty five nine, argue your case with your neighbor, but do not reveal someone else's secret. Secrets, secrets are no fun. Secret, secret hurts someone. You ever heard that little rhyme? And why do we say that? Well, I got to know because if you got a secret, then I'm hurt that I don't know the secret. So you have to share the secret. Otherwise, it's naughty not to share the secret. Okay. Some of that's okay to teach the kids on the playground, right? We don't need sin covered up in a, in a sinful way. But at the same time, there are some secrets that you need to keep to yourself. This is the point of the Eighth Commandment. And here's what it says. We, we sin when we betray a person's confidence, when we reveal private information that could hurt the person. And that includes information that could embarrass a person. That would be sinful for us to, to reveal, to go around sprouting all that. Some examples, well, maybe you know of somebody that's got a, I don't know, a medical condition. It's not sinful for them to have a medical condition, but they don't particularly, you know, go around telling everybody about it. And if you tend to be just a, a close and dear friend that they tell you, well, it would, it would now be a sin for you to turn around and tell somebody else because you were entrusted with private information. And there are some things, friends, that need to go with you to the grave. Don't betray confidence. Keep a secret if it's worth keeping. Now, that's not to say that every single secret you should keep. Of course, there, there are the extremes, right? There are the exceptions, and we want to make sure they stay that way, just the exceptions. Like if you learn about a sexual abuse case or a child suffering, that kind of thing, or a physical abuse, a domestic abuse, I mean the most extreme case is a murder, right? Okay, we don't keep secrets like that. We don't cover up other people's sins so as to enable them to sin. But if somebody has committed a sin, is repentant, has been forgiven, and shares with you their past history or their weakness or their burden against sin... Keep it to yourself. You don't tell a, a single living soul. And I mean that, a single living soul. And you'd say, well, Pastor Wells, what about my spouse? Well, there are plenty of times when the answer there is no. You die with that secret. A, a prime example is being a pastor. Pastors are, we, we have the uh, a, a, a seal of confidence, I'll say it that way. When when somebody comes to me and confesses their sin, that conversation stays between me and that person. I don't even go home and tell my wife. She doesn't know. She doesn't need to know. It's a matter of protecting a person's reputation. And so there's plenty of knowledge for uh, that a pastor, for example, will just take to his grave. And it needs to be that way, of course. If you found out that I was out there spouting all sorts of stuff, well, you wouldn't trust me, and you shouldn't. The same is true for you as a friend. Keep the secrets that need to be kept. All right, let's press on a little bit more. 
Wait, where did I leave off? Oh, all right. Okay, here we go. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven things that really disgust him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, fifth commandment, a heart that devises wicked plans, eighth commandment, feet that run quickly to do evil, fifth commandment, maybe seventh commandment, maybe sixth commandment, a false witness who breathes lies, eighth commandment, and a person who spreads conflict between brothers, eighth commandment. We sin against the eighth commandment when we use our words to cause pain or trouble for others, meaning what you're saying might not even be false. But the reason you're saying it or the way you're saying it might be shaped and crafted in such a way that it does real damage and causes real conflict. We do not abide by that as Christians. It's not what you said, it's how you said it. Okay, sometimes, friends, that is legitimate. Sometimes that's legitimate. If what you are saying is causing real hurt and real conflict, weigh very, very carefully whether or not you should be saying it. Now, again, that rule is not absolute, by the way. That rule is not absolute. Because remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ itself causes conflict in that it urges people come out from your sins where you are comfortable. We want to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. So you might say, well, pastor, you're spreading conflict by calling me out from my sin. I want to live at peace. Okay, that's not what the Eighth Commandment's talking about. We're not talking about leaving somebody at peace in their sin. We're talking about leaving somebody at peace who's come to terms with their sin, who's come to overcome their sin, and it still is there in their history. We're even talking about the way we confront sin. Remember that when you're talking to somebody else about their sin, what's your goal? It's not to punish them. It's not to play gotcha. It's to win them over. And so even with the way we confront sin, we want to do it gently with understanding, knowing that I've stood in your shoes too. I think it was one of the, was it an old professor or Pastor Moody or something like that? I don't, I don't remember. Wait, did I just, isn't that a Harry Potter thing? <laughs> Mad-Eye Moody? Wow. Where did that come from? <laughs> oh, that's embarrassing. Well, I don't remember who it was, but it was a famous old preacher, and it wasn't Mad-Eye Moody. Well, maybe he said it. I don't know. I read the book. He didn't say it in that book. Walking down the walking down the, the sidewalk with a with a friend or a student and, and sees a, a drunk in the gutter. And the friend or student says, oh, isn't that just despicable? Who could live their life like that? What a skunk. And the old wise professor says, there but for the grace of God go I. Quite insightful. He was recognizing I could easily be that. That could have easily been me. And maybe, friends, if you're listening to this, maybe at one time in your life that was you. 
Maybe you were that drunk in the gutter. But then the grace of God found you and called you away from it and out of it. There but for the grace of God go I. Don't cause trouble and pain for others even when you are confronting sin. You confront sin with that quiet understanding. There but for the grace of God go I. I am you and I could have been you. And so I want to win you over to the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, let's close with uh, one more section here. We won't get all the way through the Eighth Commandment. No surprise in one episode. Question 86, page 98 now. Sins against the Eighth Commandment are so common that we might not even realize we are sinning with our words. How does God emphasize that our speech can make us guilty of sin? Romans 1, 29 through 32. They are filled with every kind of unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarreling, deceit, and malice, Eighth Commandment. They are gossipers and slanderers, Eighth Commandment. Even though they know God's righteous decree that those who do these things are worthy of death. Wow, that's a high standard of justice. Yeah, you might be ticked off that somebody lied about you and damaged your reputation. You ain't more mad about it than God is. Those who do those things are worthy of death. It's a death sentence. Such people not only continue to do them, but they also approve of others who continue to commit such sins. And finally, James 3. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a fully mature man, able to bridle his whole body as well. And the tongue is a fire. It is set among the parts of our body as a world of unrighteousness that stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Wow, that is loaded. Sets the whole course of life on fire. That is the power that you have in your mouth. I do sometimes wonder if that's where the imagery of a fire-breathing dragon came from, those mythological creatures. Fire coming out of the mouth. That's a dangerous thing. Don't be a dragon. Back in the Catechism, God's Word emphasizes the damage we do with our tongues and that we de- and what we deserve because of our damaging words. We never really think about that very much, do we? The damage that can be done in our own lives and to the lives of others, the weapon of our mouths. Maybe you've heard somebody say it, you kiss your mama with that mouth? What are they talking about? Somebody somebody who's letting nasty words spew out of their mouth. Curses, curse words, swear words, whatever. That's a third commandment issue. But we could say just as poisonous and maybe even more poisonous would be the lies or the gossip that come out of our mouths. You kiss your mother with that mouth? Do you worship your king and your creator with that mouth? Do you sing the praises of God on Sunday and start wiping the gutter with your tongue on Monday? 
My friends, that should not be. That should not be. Do you have, in the front of your mind, at the tip of your tongue, in your interactions with others, their best interest in mind, their reputation? Because you can either damage their reputation or build their reputation up. You can either damage your own reputation or build your own reputation up. And a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it comes down to the words that leave your mouth. Are they poison? Are you a dragon? Do you breathe fire and destruction? Or when you open your mouth, does peace fall out? Does love fall out? We could even extend the same to the expression of your face. When you're walking around at home, are you a law preacher? Does your face, when people look at you from across the living room, say, I hate life, and I'm pretty sure I don't like you neither? That's not a good asset to your reputation. Are you constantly seeing frowny and moody? When you open your mouth, nothing comes out but complaints and what's wrong with the world? Or are you a preacher of grace and peace? Are you somebody that smiles that says, you know, life ain't perfect, but heaven will be. And for now, we'll be fine. We'll get through it. Keep on keeping on. Build people up. They need that. The world needs that. The world needs you. Dear Christian, when you open your mouth, be a peace speaker. Be a reputation builder. Smile, for goodness sakes. (laughs) How many people could just use a smile from you? Well, just about everybody. Let that be your reputation. Let your reputation be one where people see you coming down the sidewalk, where people see you clocking in at work, where people see you showing up for worship and they say, there's a gospel preaching man. There's a peace bringer. Everything will be better when he steps in the room. Everything will be wiser when he opens his mouth because when that man opens his mouth, peace and love fall out. Stability and care is his middle name. Let that be your reputation because that was the reputation that Christ handed you. Everything opposite of that, friends, died on the cross when Christ breathed his last. Don't revive it again. Let the sin die on the cross. Leave it there. Go about your day knowing everything's pretty good. Even if it's scary, that's okay. Even if you look at the world around you and say, you know, the world's kind of (laughs) garbage. I don't really know if I like a lot of people. I get it. I get it. But don't let your reputation get away from you. Let your reputation reflect what Christ has handed you. Not a life of backbiting and gossiping. Not a life of tearing down. Let your reputation reflect what Christ has handed you. A life of, what can we say? Cheerful perseverance. A life that brings life to others. 
a life that shows a smiling face and a kind word. A life that takes sins and secrets and buries them underneath love. That's what Jesus Christ did for you. He took all of your sins, paints them in blood, so that no one would ever see them, including God the Father who says, I don't remember their sins anymore. These are my people. Friends, that's your reputation. Let it be your reputation. And remember that it takes a long, long, long time to build a reputation like that and two seconds to destroy it. So get busy building. And if you've destroyed your reputation, get busy rebuilding. Go to Christ. Find your forgiveness. Walk in the strength of the Holy Spirit. And get to work rebuilding a reputation that reflects Christ. Hopefully, my reputation is one that you can rest assured that you will see me a week from today. My friends, thank you for tuning in again to Twice the Lutheran. See you on the next one.